Second Samuel 7, verse 1, I will, the Lord will make a house for you. It says, now, it came about when the king, that is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest. The word for rest is nuach in Hebrew. It means to remain, to feel settled. It can speak of quietness. He'd given the king rest on every side from all his enemies. Now, just a, a quick note here that scholars would say that 2 Samuel 7 is in the position it is in this book for thematic and not necessarily chronological purposes. So sometimes you'll read a book of the Bible and you'll read in the next chapter that there's gonna be more battles that David faces. And the question is going to be, well, if he had rest from his enemies on every side, then why are there battles in the next chapter? Well, it may be because this book is set up for thematic purposes. That is, this theme fits best here on the heels of 2 Samuel 6 when the ark is moved into the city of Jerusalem. And so God had given him rest. Notice in verse 1, the Lord had given him rest. Uh, rest is not necessarily just about inactivity or that things are not going haywire around you. Rest is a settled secure position in your heart before the Lord. You can have a somewhat chaotic day and still inside be at rest, amen? Hopefully you can say amen to that, right? Your rest before the Lord should not be just dependent on how traffic is or how hectic your day may be. You can have a, a supernatural rest from the Lord. We enter into that rest. Hebrews 4, 10 and 11 talks about entering into that rest and being diligent to enter that rest. And that rest is really a salvation rest that the Lord gives. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. The rest is the product of the Lord. The reason that I'm at rest, that I have a, a peace deep in my soul for the biggest questions of life is because the Lord has given uh, that peace to me, that salvation rest. In Luke uh, 12, 20, the Lord tells a story about a man who wants to build bigger things and bigger things. And God says to him, Luke 12, 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? God is preparing a spiritual house he wants you to be about his business. And sometimes what happens with people, and it's actually quite often, is they get involved in all the, the hustle and bustle of life and they may do great things, but they miss the most important building project of all, that God is making us into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So the Lord wants to do a spiritual work and if you allow that work to happen in your life, the rest will take care of itself. So notice, David's in this comfy house. It had been built by the king of Tyre for him, but he feels a burden. The king said to Nathan, verse two, the prophet. By the way, first mention of Nathan the prophet. My middle son's name is Nathan. And uh, the word, the name Nathan means giver or given. And so Nathan is kind of to David, and we'll see Nathan very prominent in the 12th chapter when David falls in that sin with Bathsheba. Nathan was to David like Samuel was to Saul. So it was great for David to have a prophet around. Earlier we see Gad in David's life, and the king says to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, 
but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains, tent curtains. Uh, There was a disparity in David's mind. David had been given peace from God. He had rest from all his enemies. He's living in this cool house. And then he looked at the, the situation for the ark and it was just sitting in a temporary tent. And he was like, this is not right. It's not right for this ark to be in something that's just makeshift and flimsy when I'm living in this cool house. He saw a disparity. When we see a disparity there, we have two options. We can either make something better for God or we have to go lower in our own accommodations. (laughs) Most people choose for the first option. Maybe we should do something great for God. Maybe I should build something great for God. The ark of God represents the tent, or the, excuse me, the uh, dwelling of God, the very presence of God. It was in a tent, a tabernacle, but this is uh, just less than that. It's a temporary tent. Haggai 1.7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Now, this is later in the book of Haggai when God wanted a temple to be built. And the priorities of the people were not about the house of God. They were about their own houses. It was about their kingdom instead of the kingdom of God. So David has this building project on his heart. And Nathan says to the king, verse 3, go. Do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. It was obvious to everybody that the Lord was blessing David, that the Lord was with him. Go, this sounds like a great plan, says Nathan. But, verse 4, it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, Nathan's first response to the king was, go ahead, you're cool. Do it, it sounds awesome. But he wasn't speaking as a prophet, he was just speaking as a man. This tells you something important about prophets in the Old and New Testament. They weren't always speaking for God when they said something like, I would like a turkey sandwich for lunch. That wasn't a prophecy. But when they spoke on behalf of the Lord, then they were speaking prophetically. And their job as a prophet was to tell what God said. The whole truth and nothing but the truth, whether the king liked it or not. Whether it was pleasant to his ears or not. In the modern church, the call of the pastor is to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God, and to leave the results to the Lord. And so Nathan goes home that night, and the Lord says these words to Nathan, whose name means given or giver. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who shall build me a house to dwell in. Now, if you go home in the quiet of the night and you're Nathan, and you just told the king of Israel, who's a pretty powerful dude, hey, go ahead, this sounds really good, do it. And then you go home, maybe you're doing some devotions that night, and all of a sudden the the Lord says, oh, by the way, you need to correct something you said to the king. He is not going to be the one to build me a house. Would you be looking for... Confirmation there, double confirmation, triple confirmation. Lord, are you sure? I just told him it was cool. That would be a tough meeting to go to, right? Uh, King, can we talk for a minute? Uh, You know what I said to you yesterday? It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna work. 
That would be tough, but David was a man that was open to what God would say to him. And so God is going to tell him, you're not gonna be the one to build a house for me. Now we're told in other places in the Old Testament the reason why David was not gonna build the house for God was his hands were filled with blood. He was a man of war. And his son Solomon was going to build the house for him. And Solomon's name means peaceful. It's actually a form of the word shalom, to be peaceful. He was a man of peace, if you will. David was a man of war and his hands would not build the temple, although David would collect everything for it and God would give him credit for what was in his heart. 1 Kings 8.18 says, The Lord said to my father David, Solomon is speaking, because it was in your heart to build a house for, me, for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Sometimes we have things in our hearts and we, we want to do something for God and God might correct us or he might cause an adjustment to happen, but he might still give you credit for it and say, you did well. If you want to do something for me, that's a good thing. Don't you think God thinks that's a good thing if you want to do something for him? But you have to be sensitive to the timing. You have to be sensitive to the, the what and the how and even the who. It may not be you. It may be somebody else. God may have this plan, but it's not necessarily for you to do. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to imagine us stepping out of the way. I mean, after all, David was the man after God's own heart. Who else should build the house for God? If you're David and this message comes to you from Nathan, you have to be thinking, well, who else would build it? I'm the king. I'm the, the man after God's own heart. Who else would build this house? But David had to look beyond himself. In Psalm 132, it would appear that David had made a covenant to build this house. Flip over there for a second. Psalm 132. Take a peek with me. Psalm 132. It says, verse one, remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. Psalm 132, verse one. All his affliction, he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely, Psalm 132, verse 3, I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place, verse 5, for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Somewhere along, perhaps when David was on the run, if you go back to 2 Samuel 7, he had made this decision. He had made something like a vow. He said, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. Maybe because he saw that there was only temporary shelter for the ark. Maybe because David was so used to being a fugitive, being a man who had to live in caves, being a man who had no permanent home for a long stretch of time. He was a king in the making, yet he had to live on the run. He had to live in caves and hide from the crazed Saul. He intended to build God a house. He had this dream in his heart. The kingdom prayer is these words, thy kingdom come, thy what? Will be done. One author I read this week says, responding rightly to God is the most important thing in your life. Responding correctly to God is the most important thing in your life. What house is God asking you to build? What ark is he asking you to build? 
Noah was told to build an ark, and it seemed like a crazy idea. It may have never rained, and he's told to build this ark. And it took a long time to build it. And the question that you and I should be wrestling with this morning is, what has God called you to build? And are you willing to build it by faith, one person at a time, one hammer blow at a time, no matter how many helpers that you have or don't have? And so here's what happens. This is 2 Samuel 6, 7, 6. He says, For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Now, there was a portable structure that God had given Moses uh, dimensions and the framework to build both the tent and its furnishings. And that tent would be packed up as they moved around. We're told at the very end of the book of Exodus, just write this down for your notes, Exodus 40, verses 36 through 38, that God would move around with the people. It says these words, for throughout all their journeys... Exodus 40, 38, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. There was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Now the Bible says that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you can build for me? This is Isaiah 66, one and two. Where is a place that I may rest? For my hands made all things, thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. You could say it this way. To this one I will dwell. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. If you want to have God's presence in your life, it doesn't happen in sanctuaries per se. There are some people who have the mindset that when you pray, you have to go to an official church building. That is not the case. There are many beautiful sanctuaries throughout the world that are as empty as empty can be. In Europe right now, a lot of empty cathedrals, a lot of places of worship that once resonated with the worship of God and the word of God, and now they are empty. In fact, some of them have become mosques. Some of them have become used for other purposes. God says, if you wanna know something about me, here's what you can know. I dwell with those who really are broken and want to know me. In fact, we have become the temple of the living God. Amen? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's cool to have a nice sanctuary. Don't get me wrong. We all appreciate this, don't we? It's pretty nice. Do you remember the old building? How many of you were in the old building? Do you remember how many fire laws we were breaking in that old building? There were people who told me, I wouldn't come to your church for a while because I am claustrophobic. And then some of you sat in that little makeshift uh, foyer that we had with the television that popped up out of the 1970s piece of furniture that we had there. You guys were troopers. It was awesome to see. And now we have a little bit more space and we celebrate that. But in the end, what God cares about is right here. He cares about our hearts. He wants to do a building project in you and me. Now, therefore, as God is speaking to Nathan, thus you shall say to my servant David, verse eight, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, 
like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Do you remember where David started when Samuel went to his dad's house, Jesse, and the sons lined up? Do you remember what the prophet said? Surely he's got to be the king. Nope. Surely he, surely, nope, 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 nope. And finally he had to say, hey, do you got any other kids around here? Yeah, there's a ruddy one out there uh, tending the sheep, number eight. And you know what? He became the king of Israel. He was the unexpected choice. Even the prophet didn't know. God delights in using unexpected people. Have you noticed? That's why I'm standing up here, by the way. I told you guys many times. In school, I would act like I was sick on oral report day because I hated speaking in front of people. Now, that's all God has me doing. I do believe God has a sense of humor. <laughs> and so, and my mom was such a protective mother. All I had to do is say, I don't feel good. And she'd say, okay, stay home. I didn't even have to heat up a thermometer or anything like that. He says, I'm going to make your name great, but I don't want you to forget where you came from. You were number eight. You weren't the firstborn. You weren't the logical choice. You weren't like Saul, head and shoulders above the rest. Don't think that just because you look at the outward that you can't do something great for God. Don't you believe that? God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks where? At the heart. That's what he cares about. And so David is going to, going to become a very prominent man. In fact, David's name is one of the most recognizable names in all the world. David's name is mentioned over 60 times in the New Testament. In fact, you would not be sitting here right now if it weren't for David. Because Jesus comes from the line of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, but ultimately he is the son of David. When Jesus was on the planet, there were people who cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. There were people who asked the question in the book of Matthew, could this be the son of David? There was a Canaanite woman who called him the son of David and said, please, Heal my cruelly demon-possessed daughter, son of David. Those who were the scholars of the day knew that the Messiah would be the son of David. Matthew 1.1 opens the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you know that the New Testament opens with the name of David? He has a great name, a glorious name. Even Old Testament scholars would tell you that there's verses, for example, in the book of Ezekiel that may indicate that David will reign in the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's a little hard to tell whether it's speaking in some cases of the greater David Jesus or of David himself as some sort of vice regent to the Lord Jesus Christ. David is an incredible name. If you turn to the book of Acts for a second, Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and there's just been a miraculous happening by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what Peter preaches to them on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter two, look at verse 23, 2.23. This man, he's speaking of Jesus, 
Acts 2.23, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God, Acts 2.24, raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, Acts 2.25, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow thy holy one to undergo, undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David but that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Would you notice? It says David in verse 30 was a prophet. He knew that God had sworn to him by an oath to seat one of his future descendants upon David's throne. And so David 31 looked ahead and spoke of what? The resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. What you're gonna notice if you turn back to 2 Samuel 7 is this chapter famously lays out what's called the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. And now in the Bible, there are several different covenants. There's a Noahic covenant in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter, I think it's chapter nine. There's an Abrahamic covenant. If you wanna know how this works and you're thinking, Pastor Michael, it's too early to be giving us covenants, I understand. You'll get your donut afterwards. But stick with me for a second. These, these covenants, just if you put an IC on the end, you got it. Noahic. See, we sound smart until we really see what people are doing. We just put an IC on the end. Abrahamic and a Davidic, Davidic covenant. You say, well, what are those? Well, the Abrahamic covenant is very significant. It's an unconditional covenant in Genesis 15. The Noahic covenant, we understand what that is. There was a covenant at Sinai that God made with the people of Israel. And there's a Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant is this. God is going to send a future person from the line of David that will sit on the throne forever. Amen? That is what is coming. So notice, back in 2 Samuel 7, verse 10, he says these words, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commended, commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now David said, I wanna, I wanna make something cool for the Lord. I wanna, I wanna make something special for the ark to dwell in. But the Lord says, no, David, I'm going to make a house for you. And the word house here is not a physical structure. The word house speaks of a lineage. It speaks of descendants to come. 
Right now I have three boys. We celebrated a 10-year anniversary at the church and my three boys got up here and they have grown so fast, it's, it amazes me. They're all tall, strapping, good-looking young guys. It's just totally unfair what time does. But I look at each of them and I, and I see promise. I see hearts that want to serve Jesus Christ. They are my house. You know, wherever we end up living, whether we live in Corona or we live in another state, my house will continue through those boys. And what God is telling David right now is you're gonna have a house and it's not a physical structure. In fact, it's gonna be really captured in a, in a throne and from your line, even though you were the youngest of eight, David, you were the unexpected choice. From your line will come the Savior of all mankind. Can you imagine hearing that? You know, Mary was pretty blown away to be the maidservant of the Lord when she was told, you've, you've gained great favor. You are blessed among women. She had to be blown away that she would be the mother of the Messiah. But think of David. David, the unexpected choice to be the king now is going to be told prophetically through Nathan the prophet that from your body is going to come the savior of the world. Can you just park there for a second? Can you just let that sink in if you're David? You're thinking, what? You, you had a building project in mind and you could have built a grand structure but eventually rust and decay and all of that happens and and. We do know that the temple was destroyed by foreign armies on several occasions. Buildings come and go. But this family and the throne that comes from it will last forever. God says, I'm going to make a house for you. The Bible is of ultimate worth because in it, God makes his promise. Faith, brothers and sisters, is believing God's promise. Here's God's promise. Galatians 3.22 says, the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 1 John 2.25 says, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. What really matters? What's gonna last in the end? It's not gonna be structures. It's not gonna be where we live or what we build. It's going to be people. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 indicates that people are going to be your crown one day. I don't believe that you're going to literally drop a crown before the Lord, a literal crown before the Lord. That may be, but I think your crown before the Lord one day is gonna be people. People that you invested in, people that you edified, people that you brought to Jesus, people that you are building up right now. Let me ask you, how many little Jewels are in your crown right now. How are you doing with that? See, this is the way we measure life. Solomon wrote Psalm 127. Interestingly enough, most of the Psalms are not penned by Solomon, but he wrote these words, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Solomon wrote that, and some people believe he wrote it about the temple, the house being the temple. But think of the house in this sense. Unless the Lord builds your house, you labor in vain. The average college student today, if you interviewed them and said, what are you living for? Do you know Ravi Zacharias this morning was 
talking about he had spoken to something like 50,000 college students in one venue because it was being projected uh, in three different sites. And he said, you know, the most common question for college students that they were wrestling with was really two questions. Does life have any meaning? And how do I overcome a pornography addiction? Did you hear that? The biggest questions that college students are asking in these settings of our national universities, state colleges, you name it, are, does life really have any meaning? And how do I overcome a pornography addiction? Does that tell you a little bit about where our culture is, folks? Does that tell you a little bit about where we need to do our work? It's in the area of ideas. It's in the arguments for truth and love and what really matters. And is there something that you can really say is the anchor of your soul? Something worth living and even dying for? Our college students are asking those questions. And God says to David, when your days are complete, verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, your offspring or your seed. The Hebrew is a singular noun here. It could speak of a multitude or a single individual after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Would you notice in verse 12, it says, when your days are complete. David, you're going to live a certain amount of time, and you're gonna lie down with your fathers, and I'm gonna raise up a descendant who will come forth from you, from your body. He'll be your seed, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, for those of you who have looked at the Davidic covenant before, you know that most scholars say 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, is the promise to the throne of David, applying to the Messiah. Notice what happens. He shall build a house for my name, 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The immediate context, brothers and sisters, is Solomon before us, but the greater context is the Messiah coming from the throne of David. You might say, well, Pastor Michael, how do we know that? Let's take a look at one other parallel passage. It's in the book of Hebrews. So go all the way to your right quite a bit, and you're gonna get to Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews one, the writer is celebrating the superiority of Jesus Christ to everything, to angels, to Moses, etc. And in chapter one of Hebrews, verse five, the writer tells us, these things. He says, Hebrews 1, verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say, the father ever say, Hebrews 1, 5, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, Hebrews 1, 5, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Would you all note in Hebrews 1, 5, you need to write down 2 Samuel 7, 14, because what you're going to see is 2 Samuel 7, 14 is being quoted in Hebrews 1, 5, part B, the latter half of the verse. This is a quotation from this promise to David in 2 Samuel, and it is about Jesus. Notice in verse 6 of Hebrews 1, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, the Father says, Thy throne, O God, is what? Forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. 
The Father says of the Son, Jesus Christ, he calls him God in Hebrews 1.8 and said, says his throne will last forever. Now hold that thought and go back to 2 Samuel and we'll have to move quickly through the latter half of this. But here's what it says. 2 Samuel 7, return there for a second and look at verse 14. 2 Samuel 7, 14 says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That's the quotation you just saw in Hebrews 1, 5. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now, sometimes what you'll see in a prophecy is a dual fulfillment. This is one of those cases. And here's what happens. Sometimes it's speaking of the greater David that will come from David's body. And sometimes in the immediate context, it's speaking of Solomon or even from that plural uh, or the singular Hebrew that can mean plural. It could speak of future kings. Take David, for example. David committed his famous sin with who? Bathsheba. Did he experience consequences? And all God's people said, yes. Were they severe? Yes. The baby died. The sword never left David's house. What he did in secret, God said, your sons are going to do in open public. However, the promise was never revoked from David. No matter what Solomon did, 700 wives. Oh, just think about that, brothers and sisters. Talk about need of counseling. And 300 concubines. Can you imagine that? A thousand women in your life. Just think of what date nights had to look like. It would take you three years just to date each one of them. And that's if you did it every night. The dude had problems. <laughs> However, no matter what Solomon did, he could not reverse the Davidic covenant. Jesus was coming from the line of David. And let me say to you, no matter what you do, no, no matter how many times you fall on your face, no matter how many times you skin your knee, you cannot reverse the new covenant. You are sealed for the day of redemption. But I've got news for you. If you blow it, be prepared to be spanked. Because daddy spanks. You will not stop being his son. This is my understanding of the new covenant. When you blow it. But be prepared for a spanking. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11 says, God disciplines the son or daughter in whom he delights. He is not going to leave you. He is not going to forsake you because his new covenant is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. However, if you continue to play games, he will give you consequences. And I'm sure if I started a line right here and you all came up, you could testify to the truth I am now sharing. Would you agree? He's going to be true to his word, but the way you enter the kingdom is largely dependent on your obedience. Or if you don't, you're going to walk in limping with band-aids all over, but you're going to make it because God is faithful. But I would say to you, spare yourself the grief and the spankings and get on board with his program. Amen? Do it his way. 
Otherwise, you're going to get the strokes. Verse 14, the rod of men, the strokes of the sons of men. Usually, that's how it works, right? And if you think about Jesus, even though he was totally innocent, so this can't apply directly to him, he was treated as though he had committed our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-beings fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. He was crucified for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. You can read Isaiah 53, verses one through nine. Now, God is speaking to, Dave, to Nathan for David to give a message to David. He says, my loving kindness, 15, shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed uh, from before you. So my loving kindness, my said, my loyal love isn't going anywhere. I did remove it from Saul. Some of you may have been thinking, but Saul lost everything, but it's not gonna be so with the Davidic covenant. Your house, 16, your kingdom shall endure before me for how long? Forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. In Luke 1, when Mary was told that she was gonna bear the Messiah, Luke 1.32 says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Uh, this is uh, the promise in Luke chapter one. You can write down verses 32 and 33. So in accordance with all the words, these words and all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan showed up after he had get, been given this full vision in all these verses. He shared it with the king, maybe with a couple of gulps in his throat. King, by the way, I heard from the Lord last night. <laughs> There's a slight adjustment on what I told you yesterday. Here's what it is. And then David, when he heard all these words, David the king went in and sat before the Lord. Now, how do you think David felt? David wanted to build the house for God, but he got so much more. He was just told, your throne is going to last forever and through your house will come the savior of the world. That's much better than a building project, isn't it? Haven't you noticed God will always do more than you could ever ask or think? That's the business that he's in. You wanna do this? I got news for you. I'm gonna build a house for you. And it's gonna be, last way longer than you could ever imagine. And from your family line will come the king of kings and lord of lords. And David, overwhelmed, went and sat before the Lord. Have you ever had a moment like that where you just were overwhelmed by what God has done for you and you just had to go sit? Maybe you could just go get on your knees. Just begin to count your blessings one by one to see what the Lord has done. You know how many amazing gifts we have in our lives? How many amazing blessings. To go and sit before the Lord may mean that David went and sat before the ark because the ark represented the presence of God. He may have left his cedar house, gone into the tent that he had pitched for the ark and sat there before the Lord. I don't know for sure, but the language could indicate that. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that thou hast brought me this far? You know, there was a lot of people in the Bible like Moses and Solomon and others who said, who am I that you should use me in this way? Look how far, verse 18, you've brought me. You know, sometimes when we're struggling in life, we have disappointments, we maybe have a setback, we forget as Christians how far we have come. Don't forget 
in the moments of struggle and disappointment how far you have come. The devil sometimes wants to get you to focus on the one mistake that you've made, the shortcoming, that nagging area of your life that you can't seem to get it together and you forget how far you've come. Do you remember what your struggles used to be a couple of decades ago? I do. They weren't pretty, folks. But now the Lord has brought us so far. Don't forget how far God has brought you. Because that's where you're going to be able to celebrate the goodness of God. And so he says, who am I? He's sitting before the Lord, I think, just in awe of God. I think all who know God's goodness toward them will echo David's words here. He says, yet this was insignificant. It was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. For thou, verse 19, hast spoken also of, thy, of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. This ESV is the instruction. The word is Torah there. For mankind, Adam, O Lord God. This is the way you work. And again, what more can David say to you? You know, David was not a man short on words. Just read the Psalms. But he says here, what more can I say? For thou knowest thy servant, O Lord God. What can I say? What, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he's going to begin to praise God. When you praise the Lord, it means to declare what he has done and what he is like. Praise is to declare what God has done and what he is like. It doesn't always have to be to music, but in many cases for David it was. He says, for the sake of thy word, verse 21, and according to thy own heart, you did this, you did what was in your heart, Lord. Thou hast done all this greatness to let thy servant know. It was in my heart to build you a house, but what was in your heart was so much greater. This was your heart all along. For this reason thou art great, O Lord God, and there is none like you, none like thee. There is no God besides thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David begins to acclaim, to praise the greatness of God, what God has done and who God is. This is what praise is about. And what one nation on the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for thee. And awesome things for thy land, before thy people whom thou hast redeemed for thyself, from Egypt, from nations and their gods. What amazing grace. Why did God choose Israel? I don't know. It was in his heart. Did he choose them because they were greater in number than any people? No. Nope. Did he choose them because they were more militarily effective and efficient? No. Nope. Do you know why God chose them? Because he chose them. How's that for a deep thought? Some of us, we look in the mirror on certain mornings, maybe for you it's most mornings, and say, how could you choose somebody like me? Before I drink coffee, it's a more mysterious thing, right? <laughs> but God is faithful, and God chose us. It's amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For thou hast established for thyself thy people Israel as thine own people forever. And thou, O Lord, has become their God. 
I know there's a debate in the church, in certain circles, will God work again in Israel? I'll tell you, verse 24 certainly seems to indicate that he will. And now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant, 25, his house, confirm it forever. Do it, Lord. Do as thou hast spoken, that thy name may be magnified, that your name literally may be great forever. By saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of thy servant David be established before thee. A couple verses to go, but I'll just say this to you. At some point, you get to a point in your Christian life where just praying scripture back to God is just fine. Do you know why? Because you know scripture is going to come to pass. And so you just say something like this, God, you've said this, do it, Lord. Do it. And you know what you can know? He is. You can pray scripture back to God and Stand on the promises of God every day and be confident in the Lord. Why? Because it's impossible for him to lie. You want a prayer? Read something from the scripture and say, Lord, I know this is going to happen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Amen. Sound pretty good? I know we struggle sometimes with door A, door B. Should I walk through this door or that door? Sometimes we have to ask the Lord about those kinds of things, but we have so much to pray about and thank God for. And for thou, O Lord of hosts, 27, the God of Israel has made a revelation to thy servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, thy servant has found courage to pray this prayer to thee. And now, O Lord, the word there is Adonai. God is Yahweh. Thou art God and thy words are truth. Your words will be truth is the way you could read this since it's a prophecy. And thou hast promised this good thing to thy servant. And now therefore may it please thee to bless the house of thy servant that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken and with thy blessing may the house of thy servant be blessed forever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Father, we are so grateful for this section of the Davidic covenant. And it, it does pertain to us because one from David's family has become our Messiah. The son of David, Hosanna to the son of David. Lord, thank you that you entered the world in the line of David. Thank you that you grew up, you lived the perfect life in our place. And then when you entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday the people said, Hosanna to the son of David. They were acclaiming you as the Messiah. They knew the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. And that prophecy has worldwide impact. In fact, it's the reason that we're here today. I believe that's why David was so blown away. I believe that's why he sat before you and just tried to ponder your goodness. And Lord, as we look at Revelation 7, we see people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people around the throne celebrating in much like the celebration on the triumphal entry. And we see that every tribe has been impacted, every nation, every tongue from this promise to David, this promise that a king was coming. And thank you that he has come, that he is 
at the right hand of God the Father that he's coming again and that he is the judge, the king, and the savior of all the world. With your head and heart bowed, if you just need to do some business with God right now, maybe it's about his promises. Maybe it's about your place in his kingdom. Maybe it's about building projects that he's been putting on your heart. Maybe it's about the fact that you're not sure you know this king yet, but you want to know him. He came as a, as a baby in Bethlehem and we're coming quickly to Christmas and we're going to see that he was born in David's hometown in a place called Bethlehem, the house of bread. And he came to save you and to save me. The wise men came and brought gifts for a king. They brought him gold. They brought frankincense to remember his high priestly ministry and myrrh to remember his death. And that was looking forward to a cross and an empty tomb. And Lord, for those who are here, and maybe, they, maybe they're prodigals, maybe they have run away from the truth, maybe they have the bruises to prove it, I pray that you just draw them close to you. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel captured in this wonderful Old Testament passage. I pray that these truths will cheer our hearts to serve the King of Kings. And I pray that in Jesus' name.